Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, as we've been journeying through Mark, we've seen it over and over again. Teaching and miracles, one after another, like boom, boom, boom. Mark moves very quickly through the life of Jesus. And he does it throughout the book, but especially at the end, he's going to bring everything to a climax. He's going to bring it to a climax in in chapter 8, kind of the the middle of the 16 chapters. He's going to bring it to a climax when when he says to Peter and the boys, but who do you, who do you say that I am? But at the end of the book, it comes to a climax where the Jewish leaders need to answer the question. They need to decide about this Jesus. Is he liar? Is he a, a lunatic? Or is he indeed Lord as he claims to be? Should he be killed or should he be worshipped? And little incidences all along the way are foreshadowing that. Now today we're going to come to a a different type of miracle in the sense that it's one of only two that are mentioned in all four of the Gospels, all four of the Jesus stories. And as we pointed out when we, when we started this series, and, and if you weren't here at the beginning, when we started back in October, you can go back and listen to the podcast. So if you don't know what a podcast is or you don't know how to get it, just let me know. It's easy to walk you through that. If you have some kind of electronic device that connects to the Internet, you can get the podcasts. And those that, uh, that may not be here right now, we want to welcome the people that are listening on the podcast right now because the podcast has, has gotten some traction, has been listened to people literally all over the world, not just those here at Sky Valley or those that are in Canada and couldn't make it down this year. Well, in the, as we start out the beginning, these Gospels are not exhaustive. They're not exhaustive biographies. They're not inclusive of everything that Jesus said or did. And even John himself, at the end of his gospel, makes a very, um, a very big point about that. When he says that not all the, not all the, the books in the world could, could hold everything that Jesus did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each had a different audience and a different purpose. And each of them, though, were heading to or toward the, uh, the week, the last week of Jesus' life his crucifixion, and the other miracle that is included in all four Gospels, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the linchpin of Christianity. All of Christianity depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's one of the miracles that's included in all four Gospels. But today we're going to look at the first miracle that you'll find in all four Gospels, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. If you take your life notes, which you should have gotten, if you don't have one, just raise your hand and the ushers will bring one to you. And I'm going to give us a little bit of context about this story before we look at the miracle of God's provision. There's a section in your life notes that says a different kind of miracle. And I want to point out a couple things that that we need to have in our mind as we go through this, because it will be very important to us as we apply it. We're going to see that that it's unique in two different ways this miracle is. The number one way that it is unique, it is a miracle of provision. That's your first fill in the blank, provision, right? Provision there. It is a miracle of provision. Now, what's unique about that? Well, if you step back and you look at the Jesus miracles, most of them that he did, they 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 were not miracles of provision. 
They were miracles of deliverance. For example, when Jesus would heal somebody, when he would cause the, the blind to see, when he would cause the deaf to hear, the mute to talk, when he would cast a demon out of someone, or he would calm a fierce storm, those were all miracles of deliverance. And my guess is that for most of us, when we have found ourselves praying to God for a miracle, to, to step in and intervene, the primary focus usually is deliverance. Had he not provided for the feeding of the 5,000, as we're going to see in the story, they would have found a way back to their villages. No one's going to die. This is not a life or death situation today in this miracle that we find here in, uh, in Mark chapter 6. It's the same with the feeding of the 4,000, which is a different miracle, a different time place. It was a miracle of vision. It was done in Gentile country, whereas this, this one's done in, in, in Jewish, Jewish country. And we're going to look at the miracle of the 4,000 probably in about five or six weeks as we get back to Mark chapter, early part of Mark chapter 8. But they're miracles of, these are miracles of, of provision. It's the same as his first miracle that's recorded in John's gospel, the, the wedding at Cana. They ran out of wine and they couldn't run out to Costco to, to load up. So his mother intervened and said, listen to him, do what he says. And, and Jesus said, put some water, put some water in these jars. And then he told them to, to pour it out and he had changed it into wine. Not just wine, but the best wine they had ever had. Now, if Jesus had not turned the water into wine, would anyone have died? No. He, but he made, the, he made the wedding better. He saved the embarrassment of the master of ceremonies there and the family who was, you know, the family of the, of, of, of the bride and groom there, the families. But these are, this is a miracle of provision. And it's significant. There's a real need, but that's what I mean by a miracle of provision. Provision is something that we expect as we follow God. This miracle and the teaching are not to get God to step in and, and deliver us from some mess we're in today, but they're about God's provision, how God's provision works for his sons and for his daughters. And at the end of the day, every time he provides for us, there is a sense that that is a miracle of provision. Now, the second thing that's going to be very unique about this miracle today is that it was done primarily for the benefit of his disciples. Write that down. It was done for the benefit of his disciples. I'm going to explain. Hopefully, by the time we get through this, you understand what I'm talking about here. The ones who were supposed to get the most out of this were not the 5,000 plus people that were there, They're not the people in general. It was his closest followers, the inner circle, his, his posse, his entourage, if you will, the people that were asked to be part of the miracle. He's trying to teach them something. He fed the 5,000, but the focus was the disciples. And he was teaching them an incredibly, incredibly important lesson. The main purpose of this miracle, and I believe the main reason it's included in all four Gospels, is the incredibly important lesson that God had for them. And he put it in the book because it is also an incredibly important lesson for us today. So with a little bit of background in, in Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick up verse 30, but just let me recap a little bit. Uh, the last time I taught, I shared with you the story of the, of the sending out of the 12 when Jesus sent them out two by two to, to do miracles and to heal, to cast out demons, to teach. He told them, you know, if, if the people don't accept you, just shake your, uh, the dust off your feet and go on to the next place. He sent them out, and he said, okay, you've been listening to me. You've been learning this stuff from me. Now you go out and do the stuff. You're going to do it. 
And he sent them out two by two to various towns all around the lake and the region. And, and, and they, they did this stuff, and the crowds, um, the crowds had heard about it. The word about Jesus and his disciples spread even more. And so the crowds, they were crazy already, but everyone wanted to come and see this, this miracle worker and hear this amazing teacher. And now word's spreading that his followers are doing the same stuff, so it's even more frenzied, it's even more crazy. And there's so many people that are coming now that Jesus and his guys can't even get a meal. The ministry demands on them are so, are so heavy. And on top of that, they had just gotten word that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, the one who had paved the way for, for Jesus' ministry, had been killed, and not just killed, but he'd been beheaded by Herod the king. So you can imagine all the emotions, all the things going on with that. So Jesus says, guys, we got to get away. We got to get some rest. We got to sneak away and, and go to a remote place and, and regroup. We're going to get our energy back. We're going to get our focus back. We're, we're going to wait on the Heavenly Father and the Spirit, and, and then we're going to go and, and do the stuff. Well, as they do that, some people see them leaving. And the Scriptures are going to tell us here when we read it that the people are running ahead, and I don't know if, I don't know if the, 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 the winds were so calm that in the boat they couldn't go or what, but the people got ahead of them. And so the story picks up in verse uh, 30 of chapter 6. It's going to be on the screen here. I've also got it there on your life notes. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. This is referring back to this mission journey that they'd sent these guys on. They came back and reported this stuff to Jesus. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And this word compassion that's used there, it, it means down deep in his gut. He had a feeling, man, I feel sorry for these people. I want to be able to help them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus and the fellows, they needed some R&R. But Jesus had compassion on the crowd. And so instead of sending them away, instead of saying, man, you know, we, we need to take a break. You guys are going to have to come back later. You know, he, go away. Your time will come. He started to teach. And then Luke tells us in his gospel, in the, in, the, in, the, in the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, he tells us that Jesus was also healing there. And the crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're going to find out at the end here that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. And in those days, they counted men. They counted the head of households. So we don't know how many women and kids were there. But, but it's safe to say that it's probably a crowd somewhere between seven and 15,000 people. That are there. Verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, folks, there's no Chick-fil-A around there. You know, there's no In-N-Out burger. There's not even a Starbucks. And they say, let's just send them away. And when I read this, I kind of think, well, you know, that'd be a strange thing. Could you imagine, you know, just taking a crowd of, you know, 
7 to 15,000 people say, go out and forage and find something? I mean, how do you do that? You know, you got over 10,000 people there. Jesus is teaching them. He's healing. And, and you're, you know, you're, you're Chris back in the sound booth. And you're thinking, man, this is going long. This is kind of going late. You know, we haven't had lunch. You know, hey, you know, Bruce, go tell God to do something about this. And so I've always kind of wondered which one actually came up to Jesus. And it, it doesn't say here in Mark's gospel, you know, I always like to pick on Peter because I, I associate with Peter a lot. And, um, you know, Peter, you know, he's the one that had foot and mouth disease. Like I said, I associate with Peter a lot. And, and he comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, I've got a suggestion. We've got a major problem here. Why don't you send them all away and tell them to go get something to eat? And what Jesus said next had to have blown them away. Now, you've got to keep this in context. What happened right before this? Right before this, Jesus had sent them out two by two. They were doing miracles. They were doing the stuff Jesus was doing. They were preaching. They were teaching. And now they're coming to Jesus and saying, hey, we've got a problem here, Jesus. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend so much on bread and give it to them to eat? So Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they came back and said, we got five loaves of bread and we got two fish. So they go on a little bit of a search. They, they, five, they have five biscuits, five, uh, two fish, and probably dried fish, easy to carry around there. John nine, uh, 6 Verse 9 tells us that it came from a little boy's lunch. You know, the little boy planned ahead. He must have been a Boy Scout. He was prepared. But we're going to come back to that little boy at the end. In verse 39, it says, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven. He gave thanks. Circle that on your life notes where I've got the, He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Circle broke also. There's three things you're going to have to circle here. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate. They all ate, okay? Everybody ate and were satisfied. It wasn't like you only get half a, half a piece of fish and a little cracker. They were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up how many? Twelve. Circle twelve. The disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. So Jesus asked them, what do you got? They got five loaves and two fish. He tells them to sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And depending on how many people were there, that's like 100 to 250 little groups. Notice that it says the grass is green. And in John's gospel, it tells us that it was close to Passover time. So that way we know that this was in the spring is when this miracle occurred. And I've actually, many of you may have also visited Israel and, and seen that hill where, where, the miracles ha where the miracle of the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000 happened, and they have the church of the loaves and fishes there. I, I love the mosaic that's in the, in the floor of the church. But think about it. They, they've got five little biscuits, and Jesus says, you feed them. And he says, get them all lined up for the potluck. Get them orderly. And, and I tell you, it's hard enough getting people for a potluck here lined up in orderly, okay? I can't imagine this many people. And then he, then he says something. He probably says, well, whoever has the birthday closest to today gets to go first. And you know, the, you know the drill. And so they go out and they do that. And, and Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish. And he looks up to heaven. And he, he what? He gave thanks. I had you circle that for a reason. You're going to see why later. He gave thanks. Thanks. These, these, this is very important. 
And the next thing he did after he gave thanks was he took the bread and he broke it. Again, that's going to become important as we go through the message this morning. He gives thanks, he breaks it, and then he hands it back to the disciples, and he has them distribute it to all the people. All the people eat, everybody's satisfied. They pick up the leftovers, and leftovers are going to be important later, and they have, what, 12 baskets of leftovers. And that's important to the story. The number of men that ate was 5,000, and then you have the women and children with them. Now, we just kind of walked through the story, and, and you know how sometimes maybe you've, you've read a book or, or you've seen a movie, and then you watch it again or you see it again, and you notice something that didn't, you didn't catch the first time you went through it, and then you watch it a second or a third or, or an eighth time, and, 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 and you, you know, you start, things start to make sense that you hadn't caught the first time you went through it. And this story is, is kind of like that, I believe. This little thing that happens, and then later, later you understand what it means. It passed right by you the first time, and, and to me, those insights of the story are much the same way. But when, when first reading it, it's not hard to miss that the primary lesson here was for the disciples, not for the crowd. And it's not until after I've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them's account, and I think I've got, I think I've got it in your life notes so you can see um, you can see the other places in the other Gospels where it is. Yeah, it's, it's on the back where it says a story. It's not until you read all their versions and, and look at it again, and then you keep reading in Mark. Hopefully, you, if you've been with us since October, I told you back then, I encourage you to read through the entire Gospel of Mark in one setting, and, and things you see things there, and they make sense because you read something else, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes earlier. It only takes about probably an hour or so to read through the Gospel of Mark if you're... If you're, if you're quicker if you're a quicker reader than I am, but you'll see things, and you're going to see that, that there's a lot of stuff happening here that's foreshadowing what comes later, and, and the assumption is that people are going to read the other gospels. The assumption is that, is that people are going to read the entire gospel of Mark, and you're going to say, whoa, I didn't see that the first time through. That's very significant, the things that are dropped in here in this story. So in your life notes, I want us to look at the section that says the miracle of God's provision, how it works in real life. I want to step back and show you what Jesus was teaching them and what he is teaching us today about provision. God's provision in our life of the basic necessities as well as the dreams and the desires that we may have. So here we go. Number one. Number one lesson here is this. If you want God to provide, you have to seek the provider not the provision. You have to seek the provider, not the provision. And folks, this is throughout all of Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Our Lord is a provider. It's His very nature. There's a series of, of Old Testament names that are, that are used for the Lord. And one of them is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. The God who provides for me, this is what this Jewish term means, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord, it's his name of provision. It's his very character. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous. But there's a special sense in which those who follow him and who obey him, he promises to provide for them. That's the kind of God that we have. In James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, James has this to say. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Now, if James is saying, don't be deceived, what does that tell you? 
that some people miss it. Some people are deceived. You know, they, they don't understand. They don't, they don't get this insight. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's saying God is consistent. You can count on God. He's a provider of everything that is good in our life. But in a special way, he provides for those who seek him. Because what's going on in the story? Who were the people who got the provision? Well, first off, it's the disciples. These are the folks that, that Jesus called, and they left everything behind in order to follow him. And then the crowd who took the effort, some of them running fast enough to beat Jesus and the boys who are taking the boat up to where they're going, they got there ahead of Jesus because they're seeking Jesus. They want to be around him. They want to listen to his teaching. They've gone to all this trouble to get to the remote place, not to meet their needs necessarily, but they want to meet the Lord. They want to meet Lord first of all. And that is where he provides provision. We see this in Jesus' teaching in, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 34. Jesus said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? You know, let me ask you, not, don't raise a hand or say, how, many of you, how long did it take you to figure out what you're going to wear to chapel this morning? Okay? Just asking. I, I tell you, growing up in the church I grew up in, it took a lot longer, you know. We couldn't go to church without a, without a suit on. Even as a little boy, my grandmother dressed us up in coat and tie. We had to wear that. So it's a little bit more relaxed here. But still, you know, Lou and I look at, okay, is it, is it cold outside? Is it not cold outside? You know, so do I wear a long sleeve shirt or do I wear a short sleeve shirt? Uh, is the shirt that I'm wearing, can the tail be left out or does that be tucked in? I've worn this shirt before since it came to the cleaners. So since it was wrinkled at the bottom, I had to tuck it in today. Okay, <laughs> just saying, these are all provision questions. And Jesus says, don't make that your number one worry. Don't make that your number one worry. He goes on, he says, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, there's, there's nothing wrong with seeking a better job. There's nothing wrong with getting an education uh, so you can get a job. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with trying to decide where to live. There's nothing wrong with thinking about what we're going to eat, uh, with planning the menu or something like that. All the provision things, shelter... But there's everything wrong with letting that be your first priority. You see the distinction there? It's okay to look at those things, but seek first God. Seek first his kingdom. Those are natural things that, that God asks us and to use our brain, to use our intuition, to use our hands, our feet, to help one another and to, to do those things. But the moment that seeking provision becomes more important than seeking my Lord, I'm on my own. Because I'm telling God, hey, buzz off. I can provide my own provision. And so here's what we do. You know, we're, we're, we're going to seek the provision, those things in our life. And, you know, many of us think, well, you know, after I get it, you know, after I get the, 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 the cushion in my bank account, after I get all my bills paid off, then, God, I'll, I'll turn to seeking your, your kingdom with my finances. We, we do that. We do it with many million other things. Uh, we have excuses. We tell God, you know what, God, I'm, I'm going to get to you, but I've got to get this taken care of first. Anybody ever do that? We do it in our lives. 
And if you decide to put anything first, here's what you've just decided. God, I'll take care of my own provision. And in this story and throughout the scriptures, you're going to find the principle that first you seek the Lord, then he provides. Secondly, we can see in this story, you give God whatever you have. You give God whatever you have. Jesus says, you feed them. What do you guys got? Go out and check. And so they come back, you know, the five biscuits, the, the, the two little fish. And Jesus says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And so they did. And here's what happens. In God's hands, little is always abundant. You might want to write that down. I don't think I put in your notes. But in God's hands, little is always abundant. That's a good thing to remember. See, in my hands, little is always little. In your hands, little is always little. You can expect this as a part of seeking God first. One of the things he's going to ask you is to bring him whatever you have. Because ultimately, we own nothing. We own nothing. We, we came into this world with nothing. We go out of this world with nothing. We're just stewards. We're not owners of things. We're stewards that God has entrusted with everything that we have. And everything we have is to be used for him. It's very important to understand that. We give it to God. And here's why. If I don't give it to God when what I have is not enough, he can never trust me with more than enough. If I don't give it to God when what I have is not enough, he can never trust me with more than enough. I want you to see this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So whoever can be trusted with what? Very little. Now, the actual Greek word that's used in this passage is a superlative of small. He means tiny, 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 tiny bit. Whoever can be, can be trusted with a tiny bit will be trusted or can be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest, whoever can't manage that tiny bit in a faithful way to the Lord, you can't trust him with more. So what does that mean as, as we live this thing out? How does it work? Well, let me give you three things to, work, to write down there, how we give to God whatever it is in a, in a very real and, and practical way. Number one is we share it. We share it. How do we give what we have to God? We share it. The way we show our trust in God is with the little we have is that we share it. We share it with kingdom agendas. We share it with those around us. We, we share it with, with those that, that might be in need. We share it in things towards the kingdom. We do all these things. We, we don't hold on to things tightly because he's given it to us anyway, and eventually we're not going to have it. You, could you imagine the, the little boy, you know, well, it's a long way home. There's all these, these disciples, these guys, Peter and the boys coming, give me your, give me your bread, give me your, no, no, I need it. Can't, I can't do that. I'm going to keep that in my bag because I've got to walk home. No, the little kid freely gave it to the disciples so that Jesus could use it. When we give to God, no matter how little it is, we share it. It's not just our money. It's our possessions that are included here. If, you're, if your friend uh, is starting to play horseshoes and you've got two pairs of horseshoes, you, you loan him some your horseshoes. You let him have them. The Apostle Paul had, had planted a church in, in Philippi. And when he went on to plant churches elsewhere, they continued to generously support him. In fact, the, the church at Philippi was, was Paul's number one 
funding source. And, and I like to think that it was this lady named Lydia. If you go back to, to Acts chapter, whatever it was, 16, they talk about Lydia, the seller of purple, this, this really cool merchant lady. She lived in Philippi. And they were his number one funding source. So, so he wrote this letter that we call Philippians, this little four-chapter letter in our, in our book, in, our, in the Bible. And he's, he wrote it to them after one of the gifts that they had and sent to him through a guy named Epaphroditus. And it's got all kinds of spiritual truth in it, but his primary motivation, the whole reason Paul originally wrote this, was really to thank them. It was a thank you letter for, for his donors. And towards the end of that letter, I want to share something with you that he says that is incredibly powerful about this concept of sharing. In Philippians 4, verses 15 through 19, he says this, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me. He said, no one else was sharing, no one else was supporting my ministry. Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. Now remember, he, he's thanking them. They've been generous, and he's telling them how incredibly generous they've been. And he says, you're the only ones that helped me when I went out to, to minister to other churches. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once. Now I want you to understand my heart, he tells them in verse 17. And you, won't, you don't want to miss this. He says, it's not that I desire your gifts. It's not about me getting from you. He says, the thing that gets me pumped up is not that you gave me, but the way that it stores up spiritual treasures for you in heaven. He says, what I'm so pumped up about is that this is being stored for your account. It's making a difference. It's making a difference in your spiritual life. It's going to be, make a difference in the, in the hereafter. And this, this last verse here is often quoted it's often used by well-intentioned uh, Christians while neglecting the context of what went before. This last verse where it says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And we tend to read verse 19. And we say, hey, that's cool. Let's put it on what I like to call Jesus junk. Let's put it on coffee mugs. Let's put it on t-shirts. You know, all that stuff that's sold in what used to be Christian bookstores and became Christian gift shops. Okay? We put it on there. And, but we're neglecting the context of what's going on here. The context of this passage is give it to God, and then, once he knows he can trust you with it, tell me your needs. It's, it's an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and, and the Greek word that's used there is dia. Therefore, because of what happened before, therefore, God will meet all your needs. You know, but there's people that just want to throw this around. Well, God said he's going to meet all my needs. And, you know, it, this isn't a promise for all people. This is not even a promise for all Christians. This is a promise for Philippian-like Christians who seek first God's kingdom and don't hoard or, or hold on to that which God has given them, and they use it towards his kingdom. And to them, he makes this promise. And I found sometimes that some of the most disappointed people uh, that are disappointed in God are people who 
They, they feel God hasn't provided for them. And I talk to them about their lifestyle and, and about their finances, and I go, well, of course he hasn't. He told you he wouldn't provide that kind of life unless you're generous towards his kingdom, unless you're giving towards his kingdom, unless you're living kingdom priorities. Why are you mad at him? Well, I go to church every week. So? Well, I'm in a small group. So? Well, I pray. So? He said, you got to trust him with the stuff. you got to give it. you got to share it, and then he will supply your needs. Why are you mad at him? You ought to be mad at yourself. But unfortunately, we too often like to live by these little cliches, these, these little favorite verses that's easy to slap on a bumper sticker or a coffee cup instead of living by the whole of Scripture and the principles that God teaches us. Share it. Secondly, give thanks for it. Give thanks for it even if it's not enough. Remember, Jesus is doing his miracles. He's living in flesh. He's living as a human being so that he can die on the cross as our substitute. And his thoughts, his insights, his power, they come from the Holy Spirit. They come from the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is leading him to take this, to take this bread and these, these two fishes and to pray. And I had you circle that because of what Jesus did with those five loaves and two fish. He did what? He gave thanks. He gave thanks for that which, in earthly terms, didn't look like enough. But he still gave thanks for it. And it's easy to read through this and, and to miss it. He took the bread and he prayed over it. Now get this. He didn't, it doesn't say that he prayed a prayer of multiplication. Hey, God, I pray that you'll just multiply this so we can feed you know, everybody, all these people here. No, he didn't say that. He said, Father, thanks. And it was probably the typical Jewish prayer that the, that the Jews used, and I can't remember the Hebrew off the top of my head right now, but basically, thank you, O God of the universe, who, who gives us the bread from the ground, da-da-da, and something like that. There's a similar prayer they used for, for, for wine. He gave thanks for it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. It says, give thanks in what? All circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a short verse, but there's a lot in there. Give thanks when? In all circumstances. Why? Because it's God's will for you. We spend a lot of time wondering, you know, my counseling ministry over the years, people come to me, what's, what's God's will for my life? Should I date this person? Should, should I not date that person? Should I rent this apartment? Should I live here? What should I major in in college? Should I go into this career field? Do I take this job? Do I buy this car? Do I lease this car? Do I take the bus? Save my money? There's only a few times in the entire Bible where we are told it is the will of God for all of us, and this is one of them. God says, this is my will for all of you, in all circumstances, in all situations, give thanks. So if you want to know what it means to, to give it to God, you're going to share it. And even when it's not enough, you're going to give thanks to him for it. You're going to be thankful for the bit that you have. The third thing is this. Let God break it. Let God break it. I had you circle this. It says he gave thanks, and he then what? He broke it. Let God break it and use it. Now, if I'm that little boy that's mentioned in, God, in John's account, I'm sitting back saying, wait, well, what are you doing? That's my bread. That's, my, that's my, my fish. But this is kind of the pattern. And I want you to know this is what our, our Lord does. Our Lord has a tendency to say, trust me. Trust me. Make me number one priority. 
Give it to me. Be thankful for the little bit that you have, and I will give you abundance. But sometimes before he's all finished, he takes what we gave, and it's like crunch. He breaks it. You ever have that happen in your life? It's like, oh, Lord, I gave you this relationship, and, and you shattered it, Lord. I just gave you this, this whole point of my life, and you just, you just broke it up. Lord, we ain't, we ain't got much, but now you're turning what we do have into crumbs. What's up with that? What's up with that is that there's miracles coming. There's a miracle coming. Because you don't get a miracle without a mess. And God is in his own provision. He's doing this. Uh, he does this stuff in strange ways. In ways that we don't understand, that, that, that don't make sense to us. Like when he provided manna in the desert to feed the, the children of Israel for 40 years. Manna that was, that was okay today, but if I tried to hoard it away the next morning, it had worms and all this other gross stuff that we don't like talking about in chapel. You know, you couldn't keep it. You had to trust him. He was trying to teach the nation of Israel to trust him day in and day out. Yeah, he gave him, he gave him extra on the day before the Sabbath so they'd have enough for two days so they wouldn't have to go out and work and gather. And it, this wasn't how they, how they thought. Of course, they later complained about the man, and he did provide quails for him, but even there, they, 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 they screwed that up. Before that, Israel was enslaved in, in, in Egypt for 400 years. And they call out to him, and he sends Moses to lead them out of bondage. And there's plagues and everything. You know the story with Charlton Heston and all. Um, they, they get out, but, but not only that, they get out, but they get out of Egypt filthy rich, okay? Because after the last plague, Pharaoh said, just get out of here. Go, go, go. And God told them, hey, ask the, ask the Egyptians for jewelry and gold and stuff. And so they just gave it to them just to get them out of there. They plundered the Egyptians. And so they're walking out. They're like, hey, we're free. We're rich. This is amazing. And then God's very next thing, as they kind of as they kind of go out, they're following him. You know, the pillar of, uh, of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They're kind of following him. And the very next thing that he does is he leads them into kind of like a box canyon. You know, they're going along, and there's mountains on both sides. There's the Red Sea in front of them. That's where he's leading them. And then Pharaoh's heart is touched by God, and Pharaoh decides, "Hey, I want my slaves back." And so now he gathers his army, his best, uh, his best charioteers. So now he's chasing down the Israelites from behind, and they're, they're stuck. Mountain, mountain, Red Sea, army. So, you know, God, what are you doing? We don't have any weapons. We can't fight them. Well, what God was doing is he was setting up to provide for them, not only by parting the Red Sea that they could walk through with all the wealth and the freedom that they'd gained, but as they walked through that sea, got to the other side, and the army of Egypt came in, God closed the sea in on, on their enemies so their enemies couldn't follow them, couldn't bother them anymore. You see, God had a greater provision than they ever could have imagined. You give it to God, you let him use it, but don't be surprised if he breaks it before he uses it. And this illustrates the third step. Do whatever the Lord says. Do whatever the Lord says. See, it's easy to seek the Lord as long as provision is there. It's harder and harder to seek the Lord when we feel like we're caught in a box canyon about to die. Those are the times when we, we tend to, to, to all of a sudden reach back because we stop trusting and we want to take it back on our own. And we say, Lord, wait a minute, I was trying it your way, but this ain't working out, so now I'm going to figure it out on my own. How foolish. But I've done it. You've done it. You know, we, we do that, and then we wonder why the provision dries up. It's like saying, man, I'm absolutely thirsty, but you haven't given me a bottle of water, and so I'm just going to start drinking seawater. Not a good thing. It made absolutely no sense to break the people up into groups of 50 
and a hundred to get them ready for a potluck when the food wasn't coming. But God had a plan. And in your life right now, here's what I can guarantee you. God always has a plan if you seek him first. His provision comes through the path of obedience. Do whatever God says, even when it seems like things are getting worse. I want to tell you, they're going to get better. The darkest point of the night is right before the dawn. And when we decide in those dark points that we can't do it God's way anymore, we've just pulled the rug out from under his provision for us. Most of you are probably familiar with Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's part of seeking him first, acknowledging him. And he will make your path straight. He'll direct your path. He'll, he'll take care of it. Now, now most of our, our life, I want to be quite clear, God gives us a brain. He wants us to use it, and he gives us understanding. Our understanding should be informed by Scripture, wise counsel, and the Spirit. But what the, Spirit, what the passage is talking about is talking about those times when, when God's way doesn't seem to make sense to you. When you use your, your intuition, your brain, and everything that God gave you, but you just don't understand, but you're, you're, it's clear from Scripture, it's clear from the Holy Spirit that you should be doing something else. It's saying, don't lean on your own understanding. Even when it doesn't make sense, obey Him. When I'm going, God, this won't work, He says, yes, it will work. And the 5,000 will be fed. The last thing is this. Save the leftovers. I don't know about you, but I love leftovers. I, 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 you know, I know, I know, I've got a friend, I know a guy that won't eat leftovers, and man, he's missing out, but I love leftovers. You know, someone brought a lasagna, she's sitting in the, in the audience now, I won't, I won't embarrass her by mentioning Ann's name, but um, <laughs> someone brought a, someone brought a big tray of lasagna for us back at the beginning of the week for the Bible conference guys, and it's just like the lasagna that never ended, it was great, and even after those guys were done eating, and, and then uh, Wednesday night, man, I got to finish up the last of the lasagna. It was good, wasn't it, Bruce? That's fantastic. And very thankful for that. Save the leftovers. Here's what we're told in John, where we get a little more of what went on at the end of this feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. It says, When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, everybody was e had eaten. We're told everybody's satisfied. Why would God tell them to pick up the crumbs? Was he telling them to gather them because they're going to have to feed for lunch tomorrow? I don't think so. Especially all the accounts convey, convey this idea like these weren't big, you know, pieces of fish or anything. They were, they were like the dregs that were, le that were left over, the broken pieces. It's like you and me cleaning up the scraps after a dinner party or, or a banquet or whatever. But there's how many baskets? Twelve. Did you get that? There's twelve baskets. And how many disciples were there? Twelve. And I think that, I think that Jesus was teaching them an incredibly important object lesson that they needed to remember as time went on. In fact, next week, spoiler alert, next week we're going to talk about another amazing Jesus story. And what happens in that story is at the end, they're all kind of freaked out and amazed. And then it says this, it says, For they had not understood about the loaves. It refers back to this story. 
And it says their hearts were hardened. They missed the object lesson. And this is going to repeat throughout Mark's gospel. You see, actually, when you read the rest of John and Matthew, there's this reference back to it. Didn't you guys get it? If you just seek me first, if you just give me what you have, if you let me be with you, no matter whether I break it or, or call you to do this or what, I will provide. And here's the key to your faith in the, in the darkest of moments. It's not, it's not all that you have around you. It's not all about your bank account or what's sitting in your driveway, the house, the roof that you have over your head. It's not about your current success or your power and all. You know, you know, that, that's that, that's going to scare you when that starts to crumble if you're, if you're not seeking God first. He says, here's where you find your security. Look back at the loaves. Look back at those baskets of the pieces that were left over. The times in your life where in the past God has provided, those, those are what you need to hold on to when you're wondering if he will provide. I find my confidence in challenging times in the scripture, yes, of course, but not mostly in that. Where I find my confidence is by my memory of walking with the Lord and seeing all those times that he came through. Remember the loaves. I told you there's a story, and I, I think we got time. Got, do I have time to tell you this story? Back in 19, I'm going to anyway. Um, Back in 1987, I was a young naval officer. I was uh, stationed in Cuba, and I was teaching, I was teaching a Sunday school class for, for couples and how to keep their marriages together in the midst of all the, the turmoil and the difficulties that you have in the military of, keep, of being a military family. And God called me to ministry, and I was trying to decide, you know, where am I going to go to seminary? And I looked up the Sixth Southern Baptist Seminary, saw where they were, and I thought the one to go to was in North Carolina. But God knew that North Carolina, the one there, wasn't the one I should go to. And God led me to, to, to the Navy giving me orders and opened the door for me to be accepted to the, the, the Baptist Seminary in New Orleans, my, my, my birthplace. And so I went there with the intent of doing two or three years in the Navy, getting some bills paid off, and uh, then I would drop out of the Navy. I would finish seminary, do what I needed to do, become a Navy chaplain. That was, that was my plan. And over the next couple of years, God showed off in a very big way. And through God's grace and my wonderful wife, first off, we had our third child during that time. But I finished a three-year master's level program in three and a half years with five B's. I passed, I had, five, I had five classes that I took during lunchtime where I would get in my car, take an extra long lunch, I'd drive across the Mississippi River, go, go, to, uh, go to my class at lunchtime, come back. Three of my five Bs were during classes where I was doing that. I hate to admit it, but there were times when I actually changed clothes going across the Mississippi River Bridge in the evening from my uniform into civilian clothes to go across. My wife doesn't like that, doesn't like me sharing it either. But, um, <laughs> but God provided. During that time... My Navy career continued to flourish so much so the Navy wanted me to go back out to sea as a chief engineer on a destroyer, and I told him I will either leave here as a Navy chaplain or as a Baptist pastor. End of story. And I get a letter from my detailer in Washington. If you change your mind, let us know, and we'll get you in the first class for department head school to go back out. I pastored at a large church as assistant pastor for education outreach at the fourth largest Baptist church in New Orleans, and then I went down the bayou to a church that couldn't afford it had been a mission for 50 years. They, it was mostly older ladies and little kids. And uh, they couldn't afford a pastor, so I went down there for two years. 
And uh, at the end of all that, I applied for chaplaincy and got turned down. And I was told unofficially it's because you're white, you're male, you're Baptist. That was in July of 1991. It's funny, three months later, after new fiscal year quotas came in October, they wanted me. They wanted me in the first available chapel school class, which was January of 1992. And as I drove out of New Orleans that morning in January 1992, heading up to Newport, Rhode Island, where I've been before for other schools during my Navy career, I left behind my wife and my three kids in, in New Orleans while I was going up there to school. I had a house that was for sale that hadn't sold yet. And as I was going across the, the, the causeway there, Lake Pontchartrain, I put a cassette in my, in my car. You remember cassettes, those plastic things that, that we used to have? And it was Larnell Harris. Some of you may know I've heard Larnell personally. Um, and Larnell doesn't know it, but I sang with him that morning. The song he was singing on that cassette was Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And I backed and rewound that cassette like four or five times, playing that over and over again with tears in my eyes. I drove, it's a long causeway across Lake Pontchartrain, okay? With tears in my eyes. Just as I reflected on God's faithfulness. Four years later, I had no idea how he was going to do what he did, but I'm headed off to Navy Chaplain School with my master's degree, with my ordination, with a third child. Just God is so faithful in all that. So that's one of my experiences where, where I look back. That's, that's, my, that's my basket of the dregs of the loaves that I look back at and remember how God's going to provide. But there's one last thing I want to leave with you here today. He'll not only provide for you, he'll provide for others. You see, God provided for me back then so that he could provide for you using me now. He'll provide for others. Outside of Jesus, who's the hero of this story? It's the little boy, right? It's the little boy that John tells us about. You see, there are no insignificant Christians. There's no insignificant people in this story. But here's what's interesting. Only John tells us the story of the little boy. The other ones just say that what was there, and we read that, and no one even gives him a name. But if this little boy doesn't play his part, God's provision doesn't show up. Your obedience, your walk with God is not insignificant. And God's provision in your life is not just for your provision, it's for others' provision as well. And you might just be the boy who's unnamed in the eyes of everybody else, but you're the boy that Jesus uses to provide the miracle in the eyes of God. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!